16, right back in chapter 4, verse 20, because it is the, the beginning of this little argument. Chapter 20. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may grant grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you, with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we meet today, we thank you for your word. And we pray that through your Holy Spirit, we will be granted the understanding of exactly what it means for us. And not just the understanding, Lord, but the ability and the desire to execute it as we leave here. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. We read here, be imitators of God. In the modern context, that maybe doesn't seem like such a great idea. Because imitations have a deservedly bad reputation, don't they? Some years ago I visited Thailand and, as you do, I bought a watch for $10. It said Longines on the face, which in case you haven't heard of them, is quite a flash kind of watch and it's generally very expensive. Now this this timepiece certainly looked the part and the hands actually went round, but I think we all know what happened quite quickly. The paint wore off and it stopped working because it was only an imitation. So reading here that we ought to be imitators of God might perhaps suggest to us a Christian walk that has the appearance and not the substance. But this is God that we're talking about here, so that can't possibly be what Paul means. So what does he really intend for us to understand? Well, this is exactly why I started reading back in verse 20. What is the truth in Jesus that we read here? Well, it is that we have a new man to put on. One that was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, it says there. So, here's our answer. We are not, we're most definitely not to imitate God like the Pharisees did, an outward show that does its best to hide the corrupt inner man, we're actually meant to be revealing something that is really there. It's genuinely inside us. That shining, 
righteous new man that God has made of us through Christ. It will be helpful, perhaps, to get a better understanding of the word that Paul uses. This word, imitators, comes from the Greek, mimetes. And it means one who follows, one who copies or imitates someone's behaviour. And so, with this in mind, it shouldn't be surprising to find that we do use pretty much the same day, the same word today, for the same purpose in mime and mimic and pantomime. And here's one for baby boomers, mimeograph. Does anybody remember a mimeograph? And for those of us who are just too young, it's, uh, that's an old school scanner for making heaps of copies from a one original document. Although perhaps even scanners are old school now too. So, our first reaction to someone telling us that we ought to be like this or like that is perhaps to say with passion, never! I am my own man. I decide on my own what I will be or what I will not be. Yep, that's a very popular sort of attitude. It sounds very staunch. But is it really the truth? I don't believe so because... If we take some time to think this through and we are honest, we will have to admit that a great deal of who we are is actually an imitation of somebody else. Whatever we are today, we are a mixture of those who have inspired and guided us through our lives. Parents, teachers, friends, pastors, bosses, co-workers, maybe a sprinkling of public figures that we admire. And you know, even those people who irritate us have an effect because we resolve to not do what they do. Therefore, what we are today and who we are today as we meet in this building is a very complicated weave of imitations. So we can and do change, hopefully in a positive way, because of the influence of others. And any notion that we are somehow independent of this process is frankly nonsense. So this is the sense in which the word is used and the way that it was understood when it was written. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, for example, used this very same word to speak of the way that people had learned from animals, weaving like a spider or building houses like sparrows. And other philosophers used it to encourage the taking as a model for oneself of the boldness of a hero or the good example of teachers or parents. I hope by now that you will have noticed a bit of a common theme here about the way the word imitation is used. And that is that one of the best ways to live it lies in doing, not saying. A most excellent understanding of this idea can be gained from the art of mime, which is all about telling a story without using any words at all. And one of the most famous performers of the art is, of course, a man called Marcel Marceau. And as well as a performer, he was also a teacher and he would spend the whole day showing his students how to make these perfect movements of mine. And then in the evening, what would he do? He would take them to see him perform. And this very intimate contact meant that their own performances would always be marked indelibly by the style of the master. And this is an excellent picture of a Christian who imitates the Lord by exposure to him. What God has put inside us must show out. It must. If it does not, 
then we become imitators in the poorest sense because then we almost surely do not know the saving power of Jesus in our lives. I ask of you, how could it ever be that the power and presence of the Lord and Creator of the universe could have no visible effect on your life? How? It just cannot be so. Have you ever heard of or read the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Hands? Yeah, a few people have heard of it. Well, maybe to start off, you might be asking, what on earth is a catechism? Well, it's just a summary of principles in the form of a series of questions and answers. And this particular one, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, was written a long time ago, 1646 and 1647, by the Westminster Assembly, and it was a group of English and Scottish theologians. And it was intended to bring the Church of England into greater conformity with the Church of Scotland. And its purpose was to help pastors bring the faith to their congregations. Now, hearing the words Church of England might cause us Baptists to spit the dummy. But I can assure you that reading and remembering its 107 questions will, for the very large part, provide you with a very fine grasp of theology. And I would encourage you, go and look it up and study it. Certainly it has some variances with our teaching, such as infant baptism, but I'd say that these things are in the minority, and they are obvious, and there is a very, very great deal to be gained from its reading. Why do I mention this work? Well, there is a very strong link to our subject today, because the very first question of the Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? Well, the answer is A, to glorify God, and B, to enjoy Him forever. So, how do we glorify God? How do we show our respect and admiration and love for Him? Well, perhaps we could build um, a very large church with lots of gold stuff and, and fancy stained glass windows. Uh, maybe we could have very long ceremonies there with lots of bowing and scraping and offerings and fires and smoke and stuff. No. It's much more simple than that. Of course, beautiful churches and ceremonies can, with the right heart, be part of the picture, but more often than not, they just become empty ritual. The answer to genuinely glorifying God lies with what we do every day. How do our actions show Him to others? What do our works say about His goodness and love, His holiness and His purity? Can the world see that He is a good God? One that you would want to have in your life? Or is there no difference in us from the rest? As an African chief once said, a good example is the tallest kind of preaching. What a great thing to say. How about this? The best advertisement for your church is not a large notice board, but rather the example that is set when the town drunk becomes a Christian and lives a godly life. So we fulfill our chief purpose of glorifying God when we imitate Him. 
And of course, this is really just another name for our old friend sanctification. But, how will we ever, how will we ever imitate God if we don't know Him? Well, here's how we get to know Him. I would say there are three pillars that the roof of our knowledge can rest on. And they are God's creation, God's word, and God's ear. So let's have a brief look at each of these. Firstly, creation. I was recently asked by someone, what was the most important proof for me of God's existence? At the time we were standing outside in the country, so I said nothing. I just spread my hands and pointed at what was around us, at the marvellous view. There it was. We might take our surroundings for granted, but when we take the time to contemplate us, contemplate them, they will tell us a very great deal about the one who created them. For example, their scale. Our God is great and mighty. He is able to conceive and make the vastness of creation. He has great power. And we can sense this very acutely when we are confronted by the fury of a storm like last night. Or perhaps we are shaken by one of those large earthquakes. At these moments we have a glimpse of how truly powerful the Lord is because He controls and holds these things in His hand. And God not only made all things, but He remains involved. He keeps its every intricacy working for every moment of time. He sustains what He has made. The sun comes up every morning. As we contemplate creation, we will also recognize that our God is a God of order. There are rules for the the way things work and each separate part of creation fits in and meshes with the others from the very tiniest virus to the largest whale so that the whole system works perfectly. And as an aside, this makes a nonsense of the often repeated saying that science and religion don't mix. As though science was some kind of higher and more noble realm. Well, that's just rubbish. (laughs) The Lord is the best nuclear physicist ever. He invented all of physics, biology and chemistry. And science merely gives us an understanding of what God has put in place and an appreciation of how wonderful he is. So the next time somebody says to you that science and religion don't mix, I think you know what to say. Our creator is beautiful and we can see this every time the sun sets or maybe when we stand in a high place and look out on an imposing view. I often think that the Lord could merely have made things functional. You know, just so that it all worked. But he didn't do that. He gave us colour. Look at this. He gave us form. He gave us smell. Our Lord is beautiful and it shows in the things that he made. And those things 
can only have come from a beautiful heart. The second pillar is that we can know God from what he has written in the Bible. And the Bible is the most important book in the whole world because it tells us a very great deal about the character of the one who wrote it. What he is like as a person. What he likes and what he hates. What he loves. It also informs us how we are to have the proper relationship with God. And these all are all marvellous and valuable things. <laughs> but you know what? Each and every one of them is useless. We don't just pick up the book and read it. Not only read it, but study it and drink it in so that it just becomes very a very part of our being. We might say that perfect imitation begins and ends with a fascination for the Word of God. And lastly, we can know more about God when we appreciate His ear. Well, how do we do that? We use these flappy things at the bottom of our faces. Speak to Him. Pray. We will never learn the truth about somebody by just looking at them, will we? We need to talk to them. In a recent conversation, we were discussing the matter of jury duty. And um, the comment was made by someone who'd been on jury duty that someone they'd served with said, oh, I could tell from this person that they were guilty just by looking at them because their face was like this and that. Well, that's not how we judge people, is it? We speak to them. We examine the evidence. And we must do the same with God. Now, perhaps this all sounds a bit one-sided because it seems like humans get to do all of the seeking. But the glorious truth is that the Lord is eagerly waiting for us to get to know Him. He loves His children and He loves to communicate with us. The question, of course, is, do we? It's up to each and every one of us to answer that question for ourselves and it's not to me or any other human that we need to answer to, but the Lord. But one thing is for sure, we will never imitate God with any certainty unless we make that effort to get to know Him. And it would be a great shame if we based our imitations of God on somebody else's vision and understanding and that turned out to be wrong. So, our next question, how much imitation should we be doing? Well, hopefully this instruction is written in what is called the present imperative. And that sounds complicated, and I'm pleased to report that yes it is. English has only three tenses, past, present and future. Greek has seven. Now I'm not going to try to explain them because A, we'd fall asleep, and B, I really don't understand them. So we'd fall, up, we'd fall asleep and still not know. However, I can see that these things are actually very useful because they do, end, they do add a great deal of meaning to words. There's a lot more depth. For example, when we see that something is written in the present imperative, it just means this. Continually, habitually follow this command. The present imperative is a call to a long-term commitment and it calls for the attitude or the action to become one's daily lifestyle. 
So this is the answer to our how much question. If we are to imitate God, then how much should we be doing it? We should be doing it persistently at all times for the rest of our lives. Now, it might seem that the obvious thing for me to do at this point in the sermon is to move into a three or a five point explanation of what it means to imitate God. Good practical hints and tips. And these will fill up the remaining time nicely and we can probably get some good notes. But I won't. I'll move to ask you instead, do I really need to spell these things out? Do we genuinely not know what to do? I don't think so. We already amply possess the knowledge needed. What actually remains is for each of us to get out there and use that knowledge by doing it. No one is going to be convicted by our most earnest imitation of God if it is done sitting inside a dark cupboard with a sock in our mouths. We need to go and do it. So instead of these five points, I'm just going to move on to the second part of this verse which talks about the spirit in which we are to live out this continuous imitation. One possibility is that when we read that we are to be imitators of God, we might start to believe that we ought to behave as though we have his power and wisdom and authority, as though we were mini-me gods. Do you remember our friend mini-me? And this is completely wrong, of course, because there are special rooms for people who think like this and special jackets too. To make sure that we never become confused in this way, Paul writes that we are to behave as dear, what? Children, dear children. Imitation of God is never intended to be an earthly and selfish interpretation of his sovereignty. Well, my dad is the richest man in town, so you'd better do as I say. No. What we read here shows that our relationship is clear, and so is the role. We are the children, and he is the father. He is the one with all the wisdom and experience and ability. Not us. We as his children must watch and learn from him how to live our lives in the right way. The Greek words that are used here are very helpful. What we see in our Bibles as the word dear is the Greek word agapitos. And look at it up here. What is the first part? I've helpfully underlined it so you can reply. Agape, yes, it's our good friend, agape. A word that describes a very special and unique, godly kind of unconditional love. And although the New King James Version I've used here uses the word dear, many translations use the word beloved instead, and I I think that's actually a a nicer way of putting it. But in either case, though, we can understand that as God's children, we are loved in this marvelous and warm way. And this brings two thoughts to my mind. The first is this. I'm sorry to say this, but it's indisputable that there are some unfortunate 
parenting examples that sadly result in badly behaved brats or worse, damaged people. So it wouldn't necessarily follow that children imitating a parent would always be a good thing. However, in Ephesians, we have two bits of help for understanding exactly what sort of um, parenting is meant here. Firstly, we're talking about God, aren't we? So it would be possible for him to be a bad example. And secondly, there is this word here, this beloved word springing from agape. Do you think it's possible that a child nurtured from birth by agape love will turn out wrong? Do you? No, of course not. And this gives us a clear picture of the sort of children that we ought to be. Not the wild ones who make mud pies on the carpet and set the cat on fire, but those clean and well-behaved ones who mind their manners and are a pleasure to have in your home. The second thought is that although agape love is unconditional and therefore undemanding of similar love, or in fact anything in return, it is still an irresistible force. Consider this. Because of his agape love, Jesus Christ, although fully God, made himself into a mere human to suffer and die on your behalf to pay the penalty for your sins. No one told him to do it. He didn't have to do it. And yet, out of that love, he did a very great and painful thing for people who really didn't deserve it. Like I said just now, agape isn't conditional. So despite the enormity of what he did, there's never any voice of Jesus demanding from above, you owe me, so you must pay me with service. We never hear that. Yet there is a great force still, for we sinners know where we would be if it were not for Christ's selfless act. And so, how can we not respond with the same heart? This is Paul's gentle reminder here of the blessing we have received, and consequently the appropriate way to respond. Not because of some dry obligation as a debtor, but simply for love. Imitate God. Why? How? We imitate God because He is our Father. We love Him as he loves us. We admire his qualities of character and so we want to make them as our own. Now I started off this section by mentioning that the Greek words used in the latter part of this verse are very helpful. Although I've already spoken about us being children, I haven't done so in terms of the Greek that the word is translated from. And Paul uses a very specific term for children here, which is technon. This way of describing a child carries with it the understanding of their relationship to their parents. And I guess the best way to illustrate it would be to use myself as an example. So although I'm in midlife, and yes, sometimes in crisis, I will always be someone's child. So Technon wouldn't identify me as Dave, the individual, but as David, the son of Dave and Delia. 
that family identification is always there. So Paul has used this word very deliberately to further highlight the theme of God's family that he has been weaving into his writing here in Ephesians. So, do you get that? Do you see how enormous and important that is? Are you a believer? Have you repented of your sins and accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Have you? Fantastic! It's fantastic! Whatever you were before, then, is gone. It's gone. Yes, physically you will always be tied by blood to your parents, but spiritually you are definitely a child of God with the unfailing promises of life with Him in eternity and an open relationship with Him here on earth. You are a beloved child of God. You aren't astray, picked up somewhere along the journey by the Pied Piper or some mongrel of indefinite lineage. No, you, you, everyone here who calls Jesus Lord is a purebred, direct descendant of the Most High, made by Him. And so we must declare our heritage by our imitation of Him. Since we are the children of God, and He is pleased that this is so, we can have a great deal of confidence. It means that if any force at all, any force that you can think of, were to step up in your face and say, whose child are you anyway? we can be sure that God would step right up and say, mine, and who's asking? We can be very sure that he will stand with us in everything, and we have nothing to fear from even the biggest and meanest bully in the playground. And so this is the space then, where we ought to be given the proper weight of the privilege of our belonging and say to all those people around with pride, this is my Father. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so conscious of the amount of time that we spend with our normal character in conflict with what you would want us to be. And Lord, we would be lost if we were standing on our own in this but we know that we have you as our example. And we know that we have your Holy Spirit to help us. And we know that we have your Son to vouch for us in heaven. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for these things. And Lord, with these in mind, I pray that each one of us would be moved to learn those things about you that you have waiting for us to see and then to take them and be them for your glory and our good. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.